This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The topic of these talks in general, and my own in particular, works within the common framework of church and state. I do not mean that I intend to approach the matter in a straightforward way, or that the subject of the church and the state, or even church versus the state, is a clear framing for us. Yet I do not want to approach this topic directly, i.e. the two swords of authority, or the hegemony of the state over the multiplicity of religions, hence a kind of entrenched pluralism under imperial homogeneity. It is not that our times are so different from the later Roman Empire, though in many ways they certainly are, but rather that the mere circumscription of the topics of the church and the state betrays our familiarity with what exactly the state and or the church means. And more importantly, it may not offer to us insight into what is entailed. Instead, I want to begin with some of the scriptural passages that are most frequently and rightly drawn upon to wrestle out a biblical or more properly early Christian understanding of the place of the state and its relationship to the church. Some of these are well known. When Christ says, quote, give to Caesar what is Caesar's in Mark 12, in Mark 12 17, and when Christ says to Pilate, quote, my kingdom is not of this world, if my kingdom were one which belonged to this world, my servants would be fighting to prevent my falling into the hands of the Jews. But no, my kingdom does not take its origin here, end quote, from John 18.36. These statements appear to set off a contrast between the Roman state and Christ's kingdom. Even more, when Christ says that his kingdom does not belong to this world or is not of this world, it raises the image of the, quote, otherworldliness of Christianity, an otherworldliness that presumes that this life and thus this world is not for the Christian, an otherworldliness that is at times taken to couple with the conception of the individual or even the modern fractured notion of the existential self. Put simply, that Christianity is an individual religion and not social or public. Indeed, this may be the impression that some today, and even some in the early church, have of the ascension of Christ, which when joined to selective passages from St. Paul concerning the coming end of the world and of time itself, are read generally through the lens of the imminent apocalypticism of the earliest Christians. I do not want to dispute wholly these, these passages in St. Paul. There is something to say about early Christian apocalypticism, apocalypticism even as this is overemphasized by many. However, I want to highlight a depiction of the church in the Acts of the Apostles. The ascension of Christ is not imaged as the great departure of Christ, that is, a tragic scene, the great abandonment, as is often depicted, uh, at least it was recently, as I saw, just Christ's feet and everyone looking on longingly and disappointed. Rather, it is a depiction of the expanded presence of Christ to all of the faithful. Not only does the cloud of the ascension recall the hovering cloud of Exodus, which signified the presence of God over the Hebrews as they journeyed out of Egypt to the promised land, but also the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost emphasizes the transformation of the Christian faithful into what the early church calls the body of Christ. The mighty wind of Genesis and the flaming tongue signify the remaking of humanity, the undoing of the Tower of Babel, whereas at Babel humans sought to remake themselves in their own image, with their famous, let us make for ourselves, we see in Pentecost an image of the restoration of humanity, not just of an individual, but of humanity. Humanity itself remade in Christ. To say this differently, if human history's image is one of deformation, broken solidarity, and in Augustinian terms, the prideful pursuit of the self and rejection of God and de facto of others, then in Christ the human is not simply remade, but human solidarity is renewed and amplified or increased by Christ through the Spirit. This understanding of human unity in Christ, integrated into Christ, is not then antisocial or individualistic, but rather, as the remainder of the Book of Acts shows, is a dynamic image of what the church is. Hence in Acts, Peter and Paul are transformed into being Christ-like, and their concerns are not individual salvation, but of the Christian church and even the expansive founding of churches throughout the world. This says something about what the church is and more properly is not. The church is not simply a community of the like-minded. 
It is not a club or a social group gathered by the consent of its members, like a chess club, a book club, or even the charters of political parties. It is not even a societas drawn from an ideological commitment to a conception of abstract humanity, like forms of Marxism or other philosophically organized progressivisms. In these types of political or philosophical systems, particular individuals and even groups have no intrinsic value, as they are all merely fleeting instantiations of the ever-deferred perfection of the abstract human, or more properly, of the abstract humanity, of abstract humanity. This is the common dilemma of such movements where ideas mean progress and individuals and societies are transitory instantiations of such progress. If the church is a different kind of community or society, I judge that in order to articulate the foundation of the church, it is important to consider what it is that Christ does. What are the effects of the incarnation? First, we might ask, what is human solidarity as such? That is, human solidarity before sin. Is there a sense of humanity being one? Is there human unity or proper solidarity? Are we even one? Perhaps the nature of my questions, a kind of skepticism, point to the second question. What happens to human solidarity in sin? The beginnings of Genesis 1 through 11, as well as the story of Israel, point to this, division and self-exaltation. Lastly, I want to restate that human solidarity is renewed and increased through the incarnation, and it is through the incarnation that this profound solidarity is realized as the body of Christ or the church. I have outlined these important theological points to situate some of what is at stake when we consider the tensions we will discuss for the next few days. As we will see, even what, even what we consider a martyr to be is glossed by what precisely the martyr signifies or embodies. Is a martyr simply an individual who dies for his or her beliefs? Hence, in the partisan contests of time, one group's martyr is another's ideological or political enemy. There is more here at stake, or at least more professed by the church, for the martyr is not merely an image, hence a figure of an idea. Like many, like many noble modern martyrs, let's say, like Gandhi, is of nonviolent resistance. An image, then, that can be done away with, as I learned, Gandhi means nonviolent resistance. Rather, the martyr is more, a particular, a martyr is a concrete and particular individual, a concrete and particular individual testament to Christ and to the church. Yet a martyr's particularity is irremovable. I will say more about this later. I want to turn now to the Roman state and some brief contextualization of the Roman world and Roman imperium. The Roman world was far from the homogenous, far from homogenous culturally, ethnically, and religiously. Within this immense diversity, however, there was also present ethnic and cultural enclaves in geographically diverse regions. This is perhaps difficult for us to understand as we live after the 20th century's great exchanges of people to their supposedly ethnic homelands, Greeks to the newly formed nation of Greece, German speakers sent to the German nation state, etc. All people belong in some land, and somehow this is determined by either blood or language. In addition for us, it is maybe difficult as we live now in a world of great mobility, where many, at least in America, live for only a few years in any given city, region, or country. We, in a way, view ourselves at home without a homeland. Though I will say I'm speaking mostly of myself. Maybe you feel differently. This certainly was not the case in the Roman world. Romans lived in Corinth. Greeks lived in Carthage and Rome, as did Jews and Syrians. So when we think of Rome, we must not think of it like the European empires of the 19th century, where the homeland holds small trading outposts in provincial territories. In the Roman Empire, certainly the status of citizen was limited at times to a very few. However, among the Roman elite, in nearly every large city, large populations of different ethnicities, cultures, and religions flourished. Sort of gloss what flourishing means. I draw out this point to highlight that the ruling Romans were well acquainted with diversity of custom and religion. While the Roman elite may not have respected or appreciated it, they tolerated it. They tolerated it in Italy itself and largely supported it in other cities throughout the empire. Ethnic, cultural, 
and religious hom homogeneity in an absolute sense was not an aim of the late Roman Republic or early empire, nor was it feasible. Enforcement of such homogeneity always requires extensive coercive tactics and, as the Jewish rebellion against the Seleucid Antiochus IV in the second century before Christ shows, the Maccabean Revolt, it is excessively costly. However, this does not mean that the Roman Empire was laissez-faire in a social sense. There were social expectations and cultural norms within as well as among groups. And it is at this intersection between groups and the reinforcement of ordering norms that Christianity came to draw the ire of Roman governors and emperors, and more commonly, the wrath of local leaders. Here I want to draw out two points. The first point is the general, even frequent tension, Christianity's, tensions Christianity engendered as religion and a way of life that appealed across ethnic, cultural, and religious divides. The second point is the Roman perception of the general threat that Christianity posed to social order writ large. I do not mean this in an absolute sense, for Christianity was a small, though perpetually growing religion. Rather, Christianity was held in contempt as a threat to social order, but even more so as a danger to political stability and hegemony, much like thieves, pirates, or even conspirators. Christians were a hated group because they signified a type that broke through social, ethnic, and religion, religious divisions. An example of the first is witnessed in numerous second and third century martyr accounts, of which the martyrdom of Polycarp stands out. Polycarp, who in his youth had known the apostle John, was at the time of his execution in 155 AD, an aged bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp, as well as others in the area, were executed by local officials, but they were hounded out by local residents, seemingly leaders of ethnic religious groups, or even in some cases, as we have examples of, by guilds such as butchers, because Christians refused to purchase the meat offered in pagan rituals. When in the amphitheater, before the public, a certain Germanicus had been killed by wild beast, the text of the modern of Polycarp recounts, quote, but upon this whole multitude, the crowd watching the execution of the Christians marveling at the nobility of mind displayed by the devout and godly race of Christians, cried out, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be sought out. <coughs> away with the atheists is a common trope used against the Christians because the Christians in general refuse to sacrifice to the gods and especially to the genius of the emperor, a practice which indicated the divine status of the emperor. As the genius of the emperor is understood to signify the providential establishment of the Imperium of Rome, the Christians are judged to be atheists because they do not hold fast to the social customs which bind political order. We see this very clearly in the martyrdom of Polycarp. The text reads, quote, and when Polycarp approached, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade Polycarp to deny Christ saying, have respect for your old age, and other similar things, according to their custom, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists. But Polycarp gazing with a stern countenance and all the multitude of the wicked heathen, then in the stadium, and waving his hands towards them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. Then the proconsul, urging him and saying, swear, swear by the genius of the emperor, and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ. Polycarp declared very famously, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul yet again pressed him and said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And Polycarp answered, you continue to urge that as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am. Hear me, declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. We will return to this, I am a Christian, or the sum Christiano, sum Christiana, later. It is a common refrain of the martyrdom accounts of the early church. After this confession, the proconsul then said to Polycarp, I have wild beasts at hand. I will cast you to these unless you repent. But Polycarp answered, call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what 
is evil to what is righteous. But again, the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. Much like Pilate, Pilate interrogating Christ, the martyrdom of Polycarp recounts that the proconsul turns to the people and he says, or, and the text says, quote, the proconsul was astonished. And he sent herald, his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium thrice, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation, having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and Jews who dwelt at Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury. And in a loud voice, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. Speaking thus, they cried out and besought Philip the Asiarch to let loose a lion upon Polycarp. But Philip answered that it was not lawful for him to do so, seeing the shows of wild beasts were already finished. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burned alive. And so the governor's orders, at the governor's orders, Polycarp was burned alive in the amphitheater before the gazing eyes of the citizens, Smyrna. Much of the hostility Christians faced in the first two and a half centuries was caused by such local social conflict. We know that early Christian communities possessed a surprising amount of social and cultural diversity, as is witnessed in the Acta of Perpetuum Felicity, in which Greek, Punic, and Roman martyrs are present. Some are wealthy, such as Perpetua, some of the lowest classes, such as the slave Felicity, as well as the diverse status and ethnicity of those arrested and executed in the account of the Skeleton martyrs and the famous martyrs of Lyon and Vienne. This means that the church was formed across some stable societal and cultural lines. Indeed, the newness of the Christian church, as will be later said, a new gens, neither Jewish or Gentile, Greek, Roman, etc., was a focus of social, even more importantly for us, political concern. This, this whole framework is the vantage behind, I judge, Tacitus's comment about Christianity, that they are, quote, a sect that hates the human race. The Christians are like brigands or pirates who seek only their own profit and disrupt the social good. They hate the human race by not respecting social, ethnic, and religious stations, and even more by not willingly participating in one of the clearest political social acts that unified all peoples under the empire, the sacrifice or libation to the emperor. To this end, in a positive way, we see the response of Justin Martyr among other early Christian authors. As he says, as many of the texts gave you say, we honor and pray for the emperor. Hence, Justin Martyr writes his famous first apology, circa 150 AD, to the emperor Antonius Pius. Justin ends the first apology by appending a letter of Hadrian to Pliny concerning the Christians. Christians, Pliny writes, do not act seditiously or corruptly, though they are stubborn. The emperor Hadrian responds thus, that Christians should not be rooted out and persecuted, though their stubborn refusal to offer sacrifice should be broken if confronted. Yet Christians as a group are, in a way, innocuous. Yet Justin's first apology asserts more than tolerance and an explanation of how Christians are not the dangerous individuals often claimed by the detractors. Rather, for Justin, Christianity is the true philosophy. It is a complete way of life. Justin himself recounts how he came to Christianity as the true philosophy, after having tried in study and action other philosophies, Stoicism, Platonism, etc. Justin contends that Christ is reason itself, the logos, the ordering principle of all things. This very logos entered into time and became man. Hence, Christians are followers of the true philosophy, the true teaching of God, thus of true humanity, and of genuine society. To combat Justin's comprehensive argument less than 20 years later, Celsus the pagan thinker wrote on true doctrine. The first extensive tract against the Christians that we possess. Well, we possess it in fragments. Celsus puts forth many arguments against Christian doctrine, including against prophecy, the virgin birth, the script and the scriptures itself. But one prominent motivation for his work is witnessed in this quote. You say that it is not possible for one to serve two masters. But is this not the language of revolution? 
the language of a people who wish to build a wall between themselves and all others and to separate themselves from the rest of the world, end quote. Celsus's criticism of Christianity is a response to Justin's presentation of the centrality of the incarnation and its effects. Indeed, the penultimate section of Justin's apology is a critique of the mythical history of Rome in contrast to God's action within history. Celsus rejects Justin's articulation of history, of time, as having ultimate meaning and a profoundly transformative dimension. In contrast, and I think perhaps surprising for us, Celsus criticizes Christianity for being too worldly. That matter, that time and nature could bear the transformative activity of God would, in Celsus's view, explode nature. Nature is quarantined from God, just as human society is organized by nations and the order of Roman Imperium. These are not divinely sanctioned, at least at the highest level, but rather are the quasi-divine manifestations of de jure temporal governance. Thus, as Celsus's quotation shows, Christianity is a threat to the de jure imperium of Rome and the de facto order of separate ethnicities and nations. Celsus's argument points to the civic function of religion and the isolation of philosophy, at least of a certain kind, to the subjective or individual subject. As suggested above, religion possesses a profound social and civic basis. Religion, as the word from Latin is taken to mean, binds someone to something. If a religion binds one to his or her fellow practitioners in God, it also binds one to the order of the state and the promotion of civic virtues. Celsus thus understands what is at stake with such a religion as Christianity. Christianity dangerously saturates the whole of this life, its religious life, not with a, mere lateral, a merely lateral referent, that is, to the state, nor with a transcendent aim that is merely at God, sometimes, of course, by the third century, called the one who is ever removed and accessed through the virtuous intellect. Rather, Christianity holds that in the here and now, the famous hodier or today of St. Paul, the watchword for many Christians throughout the ages, that is in the here and now, in this life, in history, such a transformation by God and unification with God is occurring. And this transformation is not of an individual pursuit of salvation, but the concrete realization of humans engrafted into Christ, into the church. Such a religion as Christianity, then, must be invested in the social and political order, but not on the conditions set by the Imperium of Rome or even the expedience of social organization. Celsus realized the threat of Christianity and its claims, not to Roman governance itself, but that within this life, the Christian claimed divine goods, as it were, and with this, that the Christian church was a manifestation of a more profound human solidarity, than that which the state offered. In a sense, the state offered rule and stratification to its subject and the reserve of individual pursuits within that rule. That is, most subjective interest did not concern Roman imperium or local governance. A religion that claimed to weave together the negotiated social fragmentation, such as Christianity did, was a profound threat. Again, nowhere is this more clearly witnessed than in the early Christian apologetical treatises and martyrdom accounts. There are several early Christian apologetical writings following Justin. Among these writers, Tertullian of Carthage stands out for pointedness and clarity. Tertullian responds to detractors of Christianity, noting the moral uprightness and civility of Christians. Tertullian observes how Christians nurse the sick, clothe and feed the poor, and attend to widows, orphans, and the destitute. Today, we guess something of the effects of this Christian charity, almsgiving, and the bishop's purse. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage from circa 246 to his martyrdom on August 30th, 257, recounts the thousands of widows and orphans on the rolls for food and other care. Indeed, it is thought that the Christian response to the so-called plague of Cyprian led to the rapid growth of Christianity especially in the Western Roman Empire. Christian clerics and lay people remained in the cities and nursed the sick and dying. Given what we now know of survival rates, if a sick person receives even basic health care, such as food, water, and clean garments, 
It is likely that many of those tended to by Christians developed profound relations with their Christian caretakers, and many joined the church and upon recovery, bolstered the growing Christian movement. Tertullian also notes how Christians honor the civic order and pray for the emperor. Tertullian argues for something akin to what we would today call the freedom of religion. Indeed, as Robert Louis Wilkin has observed, James, Ma James Madison underlined in his own copy of Tertullian some of these very passages. Such a freedom of religion would not harm the state, but promote the state's flourishing, Tertullian claims. Instead of searching for scapegoats in hard times of famine, plague, or unrest, the greater common good would be pursued by those faithfully and freely living out their religious life, particularly the Christian religion. Yet, despite his pleas, Tertullian notes that the common recourse of the populace and its Roman leaders was instead to call out for the public execution of Christians. Tertullian writes, quote, if the Tiber rises too high for the walls or the Nile too low for the fields, if the heavens do not open or the earth does, if there is a famine, if there is a plague, instantly the howl is the Christians to the lion. This fury for executing Christians in public spectacles is not merely an isolated circumstance. While scholars since G.E.M. Destecois have rightly cautioned against viewing the persecution of Christians as the slaughter en masse of Christians everywhere and at all times, it is important to observe the shockingly public nature of Christian executions. These were such that even if only a handful of Christians were killed in a decade, or as rarely as every 50 years in a given city, they would have been brutal and extremely public executions, hardly the kinds of things that you forget. This is, of course, not to mention that several recent studies, which minimize martyrdom in the early church, graciously omit empire-wide persecutions following the Decian persecution of 249, for which we know many were exiled to the mines, tortured and mutilated, and even executed. To state this clearly, Christian executions were public, social, and expediently political affairs. This disdain for Christians is witnessed even in the writings of the Stoic philosopher, the emperor, Marcus Aurelius. We know that Marcus Aurelius ordered the public execution of Christian men and women, such as the redoubtable Blandina in Lyon and Vienne. He did so out of anger and to quell a potential riot in his army at a time of famine. Marcus had no moral concern with ordering the brutal execution of Christians for appeasing the populace. Just as telling, we also have Marcus's curious comment about Christians in his diary called The Meditations, book 11, section three, where he writes, quote, what a, soul that is which, what a soul that is which is ready, if at any moment it must be separated from the body, and ready either to be extinguished or dispersed or continue to exist, but so that this readiness comes from a man's own judgment, not from mere obstinacy, as with the Christians, but considerately and with dignity and in a way to persuade another without tragic show, end quote. Marcus may argue for living unto death in his own philosophy. However, with some shade of hypocrisy, the emperor faults the Christians for obstinacy in the face of his own rule revealing, strangely, his own obsession with mere appearances. Marcus's stoicism was a fashionable living unto death, one which faulted the Christians for willingly dying, even as Marcus himself ordered the execution of Christians. Christians should be worried about appearances as much as the noble Marcus was. Sorry, that's my snark. Now it is hard to imagine a society where the brutal murder of individuals is sport. And I am often asked why the martyrs would choose such deaths. But I am never asked what is the claim of a politic or a society that would both allow people to recant their faith without political consequence and be brutally murdered publicly. This is to say a Christian is accused of being a Christian, that they are a cannibal or they commit infanticide. And if you say yes, you're given time and one week later asked again. If you say, no, you're not a Christian, then you're let go. I would judge that you wouldn't want to do this with cannibals, especially if they said yes the first time. <laughs> Roman officials would press Christians on their faith, to which they often answered, as noted, sum Christianos, or Amy Christiane or Christianos. 
the judge would give them time up to the public spectacles to recant their confession of Christ. If they did, they would be let go. If not, they would become sport for entertainment, but note, publicly sanctioned, politically motivated. Implicit in this claim is the imperium of the state and what the early apologists call the fear of the very name of Christian. One must bow to the imperium of the state when asked to do so. If the Christian is unwilling, the Christian is professing a different social order. For my students, the question of why the martyr would not simply lie or capitulate belies a conviction that Christianity is an amenity to the individual. To many scholars, who are surprisingly bloodthirsty individuals in my judgment, that the martyrs are perceived as socially aberrant justifies their treatment. The Romans are persecuting the social rebellion, not the religion, they say. Both of these assessments are contrary to what the acta of these martyrs depict. The first, that Christianity is an amenity, is directly criticized by Saint Perpetua. Perpetua responds to her father, who is weeping and begging her to renounce Christianity, that she cannot do so. She points to a vase and tells her father that the vase can no more be anything but a vase than she, as such, is a Christian. Christianity is not merely a layer on the identity of the human, somewhere between ethnicity and what kind of ice cream someone likes. Ethnicity, if real, is not that which binds humans together, nor is it that which is, in a sense, the substratum of being human. For Perpetua, she is a Christian. To the common scholarly bloodlust for enforcing social order is the strange paradox that nearly every scholar presumes that while religion is arbitrary, so is the social and political order. Yet this is not how St. Blandina images the effects of Christ. She becomes as, quote, the mother of the other martyrs, as the Acta of the Martyrs of Lyon and Dien makes explicit. Blandina is an image of the Mother Church in whom the Christian is born and nourished. The social order is not absolutely arbitrary. Humans, especially in Christ, are more than profoundly social, and our societies, while relative in regard to particulars, are built upon our natural and even more so graced human solidarity. But this all returns us to what the martyr is. What does the martyr concretely signify? The martyrs are often called alter Christus, or another Christ. And in their lives, but especially in their deaths, the martyrs bear witness, as the word martyr means, right? A witness or to testify, to the life lived in imitatio Christi. Just as St. Stephen and Acts praise the words of Christ when he is martyred, and St. Paul is asked by Christ why Paul persecutes him, or Saul persecutes him, when Saul is persecuting not Christ directly, but his followers, the martyr is a witness to how the Christian is transformed into Christ, that is, into Christ's body, the church, and into Christ's likeness. The martyr, then, is not a testament of trenchant private religion, or as we call it, the spiritual individual, but rather of the realization of what has been changed by Christ. It is an affirmation of human life as the concrete Christian life and the social foundation of this life as something that exceeds or is deeper than the imperium of the state. In a way, the martyr is a witness to the claims of Christianity, the profundity of religion, and the limits of the order of the state. Just as the bishop signifies Christ in the unity of the church, so the martyr realizes what is, true, what is truly human solidarity. It is not vaguely philosophical and thus quickly transferred to the hege uh, hegemonic superstructure of Roman Imperium or the state's authority. Rather, human solidarity is realized in the concrete, in the particular, and the martyrs profess that human society. Indeed, any human life is distorted by a state which knowingly evacuates, even in the pretense even the pretense to true human unity. In a sense, human solidarity bound in Christ, human solidarity bound in Christ is the substratum for the state, not the other way around. And we'll say, as we will see tomorrow, the Roman response to this is at first a brutal empire-wide persecution in the name of Romanness or Romanitas, or following Constantine attempts to co-op Christianity. But I will leave this then for tomorrow. Thank you.
how would the Christian pattern of martyrdom that you just laid out for us so wonderfully this morning differ from the Jewish model of martyrdom that we see in the book of Matthews, for example? They didn't have the human solidarity found in Christ, but they obviously also set limits to the power of various empires. Yeah, so how, so I'm repeating this, how, how, how did uh, Christian martyrdom, the pattern, differ from Jewish martyrdom? Um, well, first, there are different ways of explaining that. I think the first would still be the same argument about what the state actually claims, right? So in that way, a more profound solidarity. Now, how, of course, the, let's say, the Maccabean martyrs are taken in Christianity, I wouldn't go so far to say that they weren't bound in Christ. It's sort of complicated. You can have explanations like Augustine gives of how that works. Um, so the two different explanations, one sort of the Christian explanation is it does point to human solidarity found in Christ. You know, grace works outside of time, et cetera. Uh, but on this level as well, it still points to the claims of this, the, the state's social order is the superstructure, right? And a more profound solidarity is what the martyr points to, not just as I hear often, sort of one's ideological commitments, like a martyrdom from Coca-Cola or something like this. It just makes sense. Yes. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about what's at stake in the superchristianos. Um, because because it, it seems like this has enormous symbolic <coughs> weight and like, you know, the statement essentially amounts to a kill me, but is it, is it, a, is, is it a kill me for what I believe? Is it, is it a kill me for the role that I now stand in that is like opposed to the society that you're trying to create? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. So what, what's at stake in the uh, Sum Christianos? On the one hand, uh, there is something of making a concrete statement of who the person is, right? So a statement not just that, uh, kill me, but I am this thing. That's one way it's taken. I think there's also a general reference in these texts to something how... Uh, the Christian is transformed into one who is like Christ. You know, Christ uses the I am. And there's a sense of this predication of I am then one in Christ. So there's, because these texts are used inside Christianity, uh, you know, internal to Christians, uh, more so than they are read probably outside. Uh, so that they are very liturgical, often these texts, polycarpum, you have basic offertory and things of this kind in it. So I think some of those dimensions also apply to it, is that, there's something of the transformation of the Christian in Christ. Uh, I think less of the kill me, but it is a statement of saying, I am this, when you're claiming nothing. Like, and you don't even care about what this means, but I am a Christian. Is that the Z? Because they all repeat it throughout. It's everywhere in these texts. It's the profession they make. Like, I am this. Uh, so I cannot be but this, and I am then this because I've been transformed by Christ. And then the sort of resistance to the state is, in a sense, the state is not claiming anything but order, like its hegemony. Well, this complicated. I, I think it will have one. Uh, I think that at certain times in these earlier texts, less so. Uh, you have different iterations of it. There's a kind of eclecticism. That's why I took Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he has a certain kind of framing of it, of course, and sort of the ebbs and flows of time. The idea of the imperium sine fine uh, is there and will be made greater in the fourth century, especially by Christians. Uh, but I think it does have an operative one. But generally speaking, in these situations, it's not adjudicating anything. It's just saying, we don't want to deal with this. We have power. Like, we're trying to hold the peace. We're the ones stitching together all the different constitutive parts. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I'm, I'm interested in this genius of the, of the emperor. Like, yeah. like, do you think there's veracity to that claim? At least with, in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of the behavior and religious and ritual practice? Do I think people believed it? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's false. I mean, we have examples earlier when Augustus uh, uh, starts this of cities devoting things to this, for example. I mean, there's a cult of emperors that's not just superficial. Um, so there is a sense of the divine providence as well of, as of, uh, within Rome. But there's also the realization, I take the Jews uh, as a people to be a good example, 
of those who then don't acknowledge that, who don't have to sacrifice, but then are still under that imperium. So it's relativized, even as it's somewhat, let's say, divinized. Yes. Um, I took um, one of the suggestions um, that you're making, I know this in the first year, which is, um, but that the church itself understanding of history uh, almost demands engagement in civic, in civic life, yes. um, in pursuit of the common good, um, which means think of um, H. Richard Niebuhr's famous formulation of crisis transformer culture. So do you think today that um, that notion of the demand for solidarity or common good is the, um, uh, one of the most fruitful um, uh, mediums for dialogue today between maybe Catholics and Protestants or maybe different different uh, types of questions? Yeah, I do. I mean, without without uh, honestly being aware of what would be at stake, and, and maybe there's some profound criticism of this, I do think that. I mean, I, I see this as, generally speaking, what has been claimed by Catholicism but other religions is something more profound than simply we are social, which we, that is, that profound social dimension is being sort of proclaimed by all of them. Whereas, let's say, in the state of culture, there's something more of a superstructure. So I think, yes, it is a place of like authenticity and real conversation and progress and work and all of that, if that makes sense. Yes? Um, you mentioned Marcus Aurelius as a stoic persecuting Christians. Um, and obviously, later, Christianity embraced some aspects of stoic thought. So I did stoics not see those aspects in Christians? Was it not mutual, a recognition that there was some common ground? Oh, yes, yes. So I, some of it's been snarky against Marcus <laughs> Rilius because it's his one little reference to it, and it actually is something odd in the spirit of the meditations, which themselves are remarkable that we even have them, like one copy, etc. But no, a lot of the... Marcus himself is kind of eclectic. So the similar... Um, uh, some similarities, some moral dimensions of it, some epistemological ones, of course, there's similarities in this. I think the general claim, though, is Stoicism tends to be a private pursuit, right? It's not a public one. Uh, I mean, probably you could be a Stoic, but it's sort of like, this is my thing, right? I do X, Y, and Z, whatever it might be. Uh, so th that's one of the notable differences, as is con constantly a criticism of Christians against Stoics or even Platonists. But no, I don't think that they see them utterly as, as completely, I don't know, foreign. They share quite a bit uh, of some of the thinking. There are profound criticisms of Stoicism as well. But that's what uh, the apologies are engagements with things, right? They're explanations for what Christianity is, its profession and then making connections with this. And if you think about how we possess a lot of Stoic writings, in fact, are because of Christian texts, right? Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, etc. So, now what, I don't think if you were a Stoic, again, you, I think Stoic would be much like being maybe an existentialist today. There were certain people who claimed this and set up shrines, but on the whole, uh, you just grabbed these things and you lived them out. So it wasn't like you were joining a club, like let's say, they often will say the Platonists do. So there isn't such a, a strong identity, Stoic as such. Yeah. And so do you think that this, so could, you know, two Stoics have very different views? Each oh, absolutely. Like yeah, yeah. And then one Stoic might be better friends with a Christian than with another Stoic, etc. Yes. Yes. How much do we know about the ramifications of martyrdoms of Christians for the broader Christian communities in terms of reactions against those martyrdoms and maybe even strengthening communities of faith because of that persecution and, and, and the martyrdoms that were occurring? Do we know if that occurred or if the martyrdoms or if the executions were successful in sort of quelling the growth of Christianity? I mean, what Troy, of course, says, but it's attributed to him that. One of the martyrs in the seat of the church. Yeah, in the same text I read from the Apologetica. So is that true? I mean, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, so two separate things. No, it was not successful. Uh, that's just very clear it's not successful. Um, how the, the martyrs are received is complicated. We have different instances of things happening. Obviously, some like Polycarp, an aged leader of a church, being executed in such a public manner uh, is something that actually 
in a sense, does promote uh, Christian solidarity and all of that. Um, there are things that happen in the, fit, uh, the middle of the third century, at the time of Cyprian, with the Decian persecution that are much more complicated. I could go into that, but it would be more of there are people who are tortured and don't die, they're called confessors, and when they don't die, uh, they still will become martyrs upon their death. And so they walk around, they do some things like offer free to, um, forgiveness of sins and penance and, 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 and stuff like this. So they also become a fractious uh, point of real tension, as you can imagine, because now they were going to be martyrs and they promised forgiveness. One gives a little, I will get you all out of hell to a whole church uh, kind of thing, not out of hell, but you know, I will save you all. Uh, Cyprian condemns this very strongly. So uh, it's not all the time. The, the constant refrain, of course, is don't rush to martyrdom. Uh, you know, you shouldn't seek this. It's not as if the, the Christians are. That's why the obstinacy of, of um, Marcus Aurelius is a little curious because he's the one who's sort of confronting them to make the obstinacy. They're not, in theory, they're not pursuing it. But then when asked, they say, right, I'm a Christian. Uh, so they're not so, they're not supposed to see it. So you could imagine that there are some who maybe do. Origen very famously has this sort of narrative where they had to hide his cloak uh, so that he he had such decorum that he, though he had a zeal for martyrdom, he didn't want to run out to be martyred naked, right? So his, his sort of uh, decorum kept him from being an overzealous martyr, though he was ultimately martyred. Uh, so yes, also if you think that not all are martyred, some are just tortured, and you'll see that later on where they chop off the toes or the, the tongue or the bits of the finger, the right hand. And these people don't walk around maimed. Uh, I don't think that that, I think that that actually does serve a positive function within church. I don't think that it makes people more fond of, let's say, the rule of others. I mean, just, I'm just, but that's my, would be my assessment of that. Yes. Um, I was wondering about the difference in these social orders. And so I'll just repeat, I think, your point first. Oh, to well. my question. So you were saying, so Christianity makes a particular social claim because of the incarnation and then because of human beings who have a particular faith are one with Christ. And so there's a social claim being made. And that claim is brought into this world, both in the church and then also in a political and social realm. Um, but there's a difference here because Christians at this time um, understand their place in the empire differently than their place in the church. And so they're able, they're able to see a view with, yes, I'm living in an empire, yes. I'm going to respect a pagan emperor, yeah. pagan officials. And, and so even though they have this social claim, within their view of politics, it's, it's still broad enough. Yes. It's not a Christian politics, it's what I'm Well. It's not a Christian politics. Um, and so what, what is the difference between their view as it applies to the church versus their view as it applies to to the state? And then why would the state say, you know, we're pagan, we have a problem with you Christians, and the Christians say, we don't have a problem with you in a primarily pagan state. That's right. Yeah, so, so I think you're right. That's that's my point. And I think it's obviously the issues of, let's say, a Christian polity will become things more prominently in the fourth century when you have Christian emperors. I think in some level, you could not have imagined, uh, let's say, Christian let's say legislation, though they do argue for many different things, right, of what would be right, good, and these things. Uh, so I yes, that is the point I'm making about this time, especially. Um, I'm sorry, I missed the question about whether then the difference in the church versus, well, I think you summarized what I was saying, if this makes any sense. I'm, I'm missing. Yeah, maybe uh, my question is just a clarification then. Um, yeah, so if, if Christians are making a particular social claim, how does that translate into the view of the state at, at this time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, this is where the point I'm trying to get to of what kind of state then is it that says, Say you're not a Christian, and you can go. Uh, that's all you have to do. And if you say, I am a Christian, then we will execute you. But we're not just going to sort of send you off to the mines, which they will do in the larger persecutions when they're empire-wide. They're going to put you in the games for spectacle as a sign. Like, this is – so what is the state claiming here? Like, that's the sort of – that kind of polity, if you will, is something the Christians are in a way, if you want, then 
resisting that claim, which is strange not to say that it's then profoundly the sense that Rome is human society built this way. I don't think that that is a prominent view, although the title of princeps of the emperor, all this, you could argue some of that. Um, so they are standing up to that, uh, or they are making a claim against that. But otherwise, no, there isn't an issue of being under a pagan emperor or a pagan governor. I mean, people understand, like, maybe not DC, but if you have a law against jaywalking, doesn't matter who enforces it. I mean, some of these things, are, there is a kind of common good, and there's, there's no reason. And to honor, then, the person who holds the law against jaywalking, not that it should be enforced. I'm, I'm not making any claims about this, and it isn't enforced in D.C. Uh, so you, there's nothing against this, uh, that polity. It is this strange sort of claim that I'm taking it in part to be that the state is actually acknowledging that people aren't, there isn't a profound human solidarity. Right. In fact, and that justifies its very sort of it is the thing that holds together the fractious dimensions or the fractious parts of it, human. I mean, I still think this is something that comes up often when people talk about faith uh, and sort of the epistemological necessity of faith. I think that there's nothing more empirically false than that humans are one. Right. You kind of have to believe this. It just doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, I do believe it, but you'd see this. And I think there's a sense of where the kind of argument against the Christians being made is that they seem to be claiming something more. And the state is claiming not something more, but that there isn't anything more in a way. And you can do your own private things. I think well, this will be our last oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm curious what, um, what do we know about like the, the Christians who did recant before the public spectacle? Like, sort of how did Rome State really just like let them go. Yeah, yeah, they How do Christians and their communities react to that? Like, how do the non-Christians react? Because there's this, like, assumption that, like, that person is a Christian anyways, right? It's, it's, it's tricky. Um, so how did, how did the Christians react to the Christians who recanted? We have examples of this. Uh, like, that's apostasy, and this is part of the great uh, schism that takes place with Novation and Cyprian. For example, that we have the most evidence. We have the belly, et cetera, of that taking place. So uh, obviously Christians weren't fond of it because you, you see this where people, often what people will do when they're the empire wide is they will very quickly uh, send their servant or, because this is an issue largely for upper class people, less so for poor, when they're having these mandatory offerings of libation or you throw the little bit of meat on the thing or you burn the incense, uh, you have to kind of have someone who can certify it. I will get into that next time. But so these people will send others to do it for them. And yet your neighbor may go and be tortured or killed. So that alone, just you think within a community, it's like, oh, well, you're back in church on Sunday, Scott clean, and then someone else is missing. This is not something that is easy to sort of smooth out. Now, they're, they're, those people are brought in before Cyprian as penitents for the rest of their life. Uh, Cyprian changes that uh, because of how the imperial-wide imperial DC persecution makes things much more complicated. Uh, so they're viewed, I guess, simply speaking, unfavorably, uh, though there is a place for them as penitents because that's viewed as apostasy. But we know people did this, and people understand it. There actually becomes grades. Like, did you apostatize under torture? Well, this is obviously mitigating these kinds of things uh, than just someone who sent, sent their servant to, to offer it and got it signed as if it was them. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the last one.